This episode of Security Management Highlights is brought to you by ASIS International's Member Appreciation Month, where ASIS members can get special deals, exclusive content, and win prizes all month long. To learn more, please visit them at asisonline.org forward slash MAM. Amazons and FedEx and UPSs and others are going, wait a second, guys, we can't we can't keep losing, you know, 2% of our product at the front porch. And so I think we're just at that very early stage where people are starting to say, we got to do something. If you're a member of ASAS, you will get some visibility in a positive way. You know, and each week he would almost start a new piece of paper and make a list of the things. And of course, he ended up with you know, 30 pieces of paper and they all had, you know, hundreds of things that he's supposed to do. And he's like, hold on, like <laughs> you need to go through that that list uh, and figure out what's actually important, because what was important two weeks ago might not be important today. All that and much, much more on this month's edition of Security Management Highlights. I'm your host, the security guy, Chuck Harold. Ben Stickle, PhD, is an associate professor of criminal justice at Middle Tennessee State University. He is a recognized expert in last-mile delivery, focusing on package theft. Mr. Ben Stickle, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Well, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Today's topic is Pirates on the Porch. We're talking about curbing theft in package deliveries. So I think that the term used is called... uh, at the end of the last mile. Interesting term. Define that for me. Well, you know, what we're finding out is that uh, this is a crime that's occurring at the very last foot, if you will, of the last mile. So many of your listeners are probably familiar with the last mile. That's roughly the time and space it takes to get something from maybe a fulfillment center to someone's front door. But what we're finding out is a lot of the loss that occurs, including theft from porch pirates and other uh, issues are occurring like after the package has been delivered. So we really need to start you know, turning some focus and some attention to looking at what happens after a package is left unattended uh, on a front porch or at someone's home, because uh, we really want to get it over the threshold. And if it doesn't get undamaged um, and not stolen into the hands of the consumer, then really it's kind of an incomplete delivery. And this is kind of a lost area that not a lot of people are focusing on at the moment. And part of that's just tradition. Part of that's the increase in this type of crime. But I'm really urging people to start thinking about how we make sure that a package that's left at a house, you know, crosses that threshold inside the door to get to the consumer, you know, in a condition that it was intended and not stolen. So we used to worry about the well, we still worry about the supply chain, but that's really a different animal here. And we worry about the packages getting stolen off the truck, but off your porch, it's not new, but the volume is new, isn't it? Give me some stats if you have them on, you know, what this was five years ago and what it is today. It's really gone up a lot, hasn't it? Yeah, it's gone up a tremendous amount. And as you said, this isn't really a new type of crime, but it sure has become popular. And there's a number of reasons for that. It's really what I call a low barrier to entry type of crime. I mean, let's be honest, it takes almost no skill to walk up to a house and pick up a package and walk away. Most other crimes, you know, requires some level of skill or knowledge about a particular item or a thing that you're doing, whether it's breaking into a car or or home or something like that. But this is pretty easy. And it's not as brazen as perhaps conducting a robbery or even shoplifting or something like that. So it's a very easy crime to get into. And I think that the attention that's been given on social media and other avenues has led to more and more people thinking, well, this could be easy to do. And we, you know, look at the 
astronomical increase in home deliveries that we are experiencing that was already on a rise and then really tipped off when we look at what happened, you know, uh, during the pandemic beginning in 2020. And so what we've seen is just a tremendous increase in this crime. A recent study, again, based on a survey by SafeWise, looking at the number of people who were searching for, you know, keywords about package theft or said they were, and trying to correlate that with the average number of thefts in states and cities, you know, they estimated that about 210 million packages were stolen in 2021. Now, again, this is kind of an estimate. Most people aren't calling the police. Uh, I did a survey with a graduate student, uh, Melody Hicks, here at Middle Tennessee State University, and, and we did a survey of about 700 people, and, and very, very few actually called the police. Most of them would contact Amazon um, or whoever they purchased the package from. And what we're seeing early on is that these organizations and companies, uh, in order to keep, you know, good customer, uh, you know, continuing to come back to keep them happy, that they're willing to, you know, um, refund or resend another item. But of course, this is not cost free. So this has a significant impact, maybe not as much on the consumer as other types of crime and theft, but certainly uh, it has an impact on the businesses. And that can have a, you know, a trickle down effect on the consumer with pricing and things of that nature as well. Let's talk about the laws. I'm a, I'm a retired police officer. Uh, I've arrested thousands of people in my career. And I got to tell you, if I got a call for this sort of package theft, I could find a penal code section to arrest somebody for, and I go try and arrest them. That's old school maybe, right? But, you know, you're talking theft, grand theft. In some states, when you have several attempts and you can determine the guy did it, it could be burglary if they're entering into a garage area, a structure. Uh, I don't know that we need special laws for this. Is it just, it's just not a high priority crime right now in the age of COVID? Well, I think it's interestingly enough becoming a high priority crime, and, and there's many, many states that are actually passing laws specifically targeting this. And so, um, you know, as a former police officer and a security um, you know, person myself, I am dubious to some degree of how successful these laws will be. Um, as you said, we could find a, a law to, you know, likely arrest somebody for it. It's still a theft. There's no, no doubt about that. And in many states, theft, you know, penalties and laws are based on the, uh, the value of what it is that's stolen. So it could be anything from a misdemeanor to a felony. We are seeing states that are incorporating laws specifically targeting uh, package theft. And in some states, they're making any package theft a felony, which, oh. um, you know, if you happen to steal a box of uh, athletic socks, for example, for $12, it seems a little intense to think we're going to have someone in, in prison for over a year for that. So that just goes to show you that there is a, um, you know, a concern over this occurring and, and different methods to try and prevent it. But I have some real doubts about how successful a law is really going to curb uh, someone wanting to do this. So I think the real value in this is identifying that it's a problem and allowing us to collect some data that would allow for a better study. So this is where the practitioner turned academic uh, side of me comes out. And I want to know where this is occurring, when it's occurring, who's involved, uh, what is the value of the items that are stolen? Um, what is the type of neighborhood while this is you know, occurring? And the only real way to get some of that data is to look at police reports. And so by having a specific statute that says this is a package theft, we could call some of that information and really develop what I find as a, again, as a former practitioner, the most uh, compelling thing we can do is to try and prevent this. So how can we uh, design a better box? And I've legitimately spoken about that to reduce package theft. How do we rethink and redesign our front porches? Um, 
how do we uh, build new buildings so that they incorporate uh, some type of feature that would reduce this? If you uh, recall, or maybe you've at least seen some homes like this, maybe up in the north you had a coal chute on the side of your house to let uh, someone come and deliver coal to your house to keep it warm in the winter, or a milk chute, or even a mail slot. And those are all designs that we've changed to structure and very nature of a home to solve problems. And so a law. Uh, might be able to collect enough data to allow us to understand this problem fully and then rethink the front porch. Maybe all new homes need to have some type of package delivery, um, you know, secure area built right into them, just as we've done that for, you know, hundreds of years. And so I think there are some advantages to a law, but I don't think just passing one's going to necessarily solve this problem overnight. Let's talk about who these people are. Uh, we're calling them porch pirates. Uh, I wish we didn't call them that because that just encourages them to make uh, TikTok videos <laughs> about them. And I love the videos where they actually get caught or somebody puts a booby trap in the box and a smoke bomb goes off in the car. I love those videos. Uh, but again, those things also sure. encourage, right? Don't It does encourage the theft of people for challenges. People love this kind of thing publicly. But what are the demographics here? Are, are these organized crime units like you see in some you know, post-COVID uh, crimes, or are these just kind of opportunists? Well, I'm going to say yes to that question, which isn't very satisfactory. And I say <laughs> yes because uh, we really don't know a whole lot yet. And, you know, I conducted one of the first studies that I'm aware of on this topic, and we took uh, surveillance videos and we did a, a crime script analysis looking at situational crime prevention techniques. And part of that was we tried to find out, like, who are these people? And you know, it was somewhat surprising. I'll give you just kind of a rough overview. Now, this was not a uh, scientific and as a you can't apply this across, uh, you know, uh, time and space. We don't know this for a fact. But, you know, and looking at, uh, you know, what we found, um, we found that um, it was split, you know, racially about 54% were uh, for were white, 15% were black and 9% um, Hispanic, and about 3% Asian, which is a little bit different than we might you know, expect for some crimes. And, you know, we also found that it tended to be younger folks who were involved with this. Now, we did something very challenging is I wanted to try and evaluate people um, based on um, maybe income level, if you want to call it that. And we did that because there was a lot of people who were saying, well, this is just a, you know, homeless people who are out, you know, taking packages. And so we tried to evaluate and, uh, you know, this is kind of uh, biased to some degree, but we accepted our biases. And what we found is that there were a lot of people who had on Gucci sunglasses and were driving BMWs who would pull up to a house and steal a package. And we thought that was very interesting. Now, again, that might not happen in every neighborhood, um, but we didn't actually see a lot of people who, you know, looked like they were homeless or maybe down on their luck, you know, out stealing packages. It seemed like people who uh, might normally just be in that neighborhood who were swiping packages. Uh, they tended to work in pairs. We saw that quite often. Often they would drive a car. One would be the, the driver, so to speak, and they might pull in or back into someone's driveway and the person would get out, maybe leave a door open for a quick exit and walk up to a home, pick up a package and run back to the car and drive away. Now, to your your last uh, question about whether it's organized or spontaneous, I think the answer is both. I think we saw in the videos there were 
a fair number of people who were walking down the street and looked over, saw a package, and you could almost see the decision on their face. They were like, hmm. And uh, sometimes you could see the hesitation in their in their steps, and they'd kind of think about it, and they'd walk up and take the package and run away. But we also saw what looked like some people who were more organized, um, perhaps following behind a delivery vehicle or driving a, um, oddly enough, a couple of moving vans, like a U-Haul truck we saw, uh, you know, taking packages and someone wearing a uniform of a delivery company. So there does seem to be some aspect of both how this is organized um, and targeted uh, and some aspect where it's just going to be, you know, a group of people who are walking by and happen to see a tempting target. So the answer is yes to both of those. And um, I think it uh, warrants a lot of investigation. And I would love to go interview some some package thieves because I think there's a uh, an interesting psychological question here. I think it's kind of like gambling because uh, you really don't know what you're going to get. And, right. and I'd, I'd be very interested to ask some some questions like that, you know, like, why are you doing this? Because on occasion, you could hit the uh, the jackpot, if you will, and get an iPhone. Um, and on other times, you're going to find some uh, baby formula, which for organized uh, retail crime is going to have a, a high sale value. And other times, like I mentioned, you're going to get a, a, a bottle of vitamins and, and not care a bit about it. So I think it's a very interesting profile of those who are doing this, especially those who will be doing it um, a lot and repeatedly. There's there's going to be some interesting aspects here. I'm sure there's going to be a thrill of it that's going to be a, a, an important aspect of this crime that's different than perhaps other crimes. It's a really complex crime and there's lots of different areas that you can look at. Um, I spoke at a packaging conference a few months ago and basically uh, had a discussion about how to design out crime, you know, the type of packaging. And some of that comes down to actual packaging. Others of it comes down to uh, solving the problem through the delivery services. So um, you know, if you're shipping something that's electronic, there's a great big huge sticker required by federal law that says uh, batteries included, uh, you know, and that's required by law to have it on there. But that's just a, a red light to a thief who walks by and sees that from the roadway and they go, hey, that's a high dollar item. It's got some rechargeable batteries in it, like a phone or a computer. So even just training delivery drivers, hey, let's flip that sticker face down, you know, on the porch. Um, you know, might change things. Or again, having a consumer um, have a, uh, a box on their front porch that's lockable, that allows them to secure these devices. Um, you know, there's lots of simple things, but it's not going to be a one solution fits all. This needs to be something that's comprehensive, that includes both victims of the crime, that includes some legislative activity, but also includes the retailers and uh, those who are delivering the packages to really solve this problem that, again, I'm trying to highlight is really at the last foot of the delivery point to, to really make sure that we get customers, you know, what they're looking for when they want it. I think we're at that point with retail and home delivery that I think it's all of a sudden uh, Amazons and FedEx and UPSs and others are going, wait a second, guys, we can't we can't keep losing, you know, 2% of our product at the front porch. And so I think we're just at that very early stage where people are starting to say, we got to do something, you know. Um, and one of the things that I would love to do that I keep trying to tell people is uh, we can do this together, right? There's no reason that um, Bath and Body and Ulta Beauty and Amazon and uh, Walmart can't share their data and say, let's solve this issue, you know, together um, and, and share these techniques and, and share, you know, across different devices. Because uh, I really think that's what it's going to be uh, be necessary to, to do. And so I think people are, are waking up. I think it's, it's becoming an issue and, and, and we're going to have to respond to it somehow. And multiple different ways to do that you know it's going to be a real challenge ben stickle thank you so much for coming on security management highlights my friend really good topic uh, and good luck to you in your studies and uh, let's check in maybe next year and see what's happening 
Thanks so much. I would look forward to it. Erwin Vanderwert, APP, is the Area Security Manager Benelux for SAP Global Security and a member of the ASIS Young Professionals Community. Erwin Vanderwert, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thank you very much, for uh, Chuck, for having me. You know, it's ASIS Member Appreciation Month this March, and I, I have to say I really appreciate meeting up with you as one of our leaders from ASIS's Young Professional Community. I always like speaking to the young professionals. As an ASIS Young Professional, can you share with me more about your reason to join ASIS and how you've optimized your member benefits? Yeah, definitely. Um, well, it's kind of a funny story, uh, I have to admit. Um, it was, whew, I think, uh, 2016 um, when I saw a notification about ASIS Benelux, uh, and I was not familiar uh, with the whole ASIS um, community as well. So I just thought, well, just have a leap of faith and do the things, take some risks, uh, and we'll see where we go. And well, after the first meeting uh, within the Benelux chapter, um, yeah, I was pretty much sold. Um, I thought, well, these are the kind of people I want to be around. Uh, I'm in the, in the right room, so to say. Um, I can learn from these people. But it brings me over time right now. I've been a member, I think, for almost five years now, coming back, coming to that. Um, yeah, I've, I've leveraged a lot from the long term. I, I've managed to um, get to know a lot of people around the world, which is just amazing because definitely within COVID, I was not able to travel around. So you won't meet a lot of people, but also the, the local network with that. Um, the, the jobs I had before this and the, the switching of my jobs, uh, I could very leverage the connections which I made within ASAS and I will also uh, give a call to the people if I have uh, a dilemma. Uh, for example, in the past, I had two jobs to uh, choose from, which is beneficial eventually, but it was very hard uh, for me to, to, yeah, to choose uh, between those two because they were very similar. So I could just pick up the phone and uh, ring somebody and say, well, this is my dilemma. How would you approach this? And it helped me out. And yeah, it is also where I am today due to the connections I have. Young professionals are really a dynamic community within ASIS. How do you feel this next generation of leaders are impacting the profession? You guys are bringing the new technology, uh, you know, the new ideas to the profession. So it's it's really, I think it's a dynamic impact in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, it is. Yes, it's it's very overwhelming as a starting prof professional. As like you said, there's so much to learn from and uh, time is always the enemy uh, because you, you have only 24 hours in a day but if i look at the profession what we can bring as young professionals um, is definitely the first part i would say uh, digitalization and that's what i mean in regards to processes but also to understanding how organizations use their uh, their systems and how we can, in this case, just protect them. Uh, but always also with the people as definitely the last two years, but I think that was a trend which was already going on is, for example, the flex working. Uh, I think young people like myself really like that to divide your times, don't need to go to the office um, and uh, also understand 
the balances between that. Um, I think the security uh, industry, uh, we can't say, well, it's 5 p.m., we're gone. Uh, but I do think that we as your professors can bring that the balance a little bit better because we're a 24 seven industry, but um, your professionals, um, we give that new perspective. I think to our current leaders to understand, well, okay, there is a job, yes, uh, but there are also, we take into account how people work these days and what people want these days because nine to five won't be there. Um, 24 seven offices were already there, but. I don't think they were very leveraged at that moment, but that will change eventually. Going back to the career path, the career path is different from, I would say 25 years ago to now and what kind of utilities we have as a young professional already, because we can have a lot of universities where we can attend to a security uh, study or a safety study, where we can uh, already get the basic knowledge and it is our first career for most of the young professionals, not a second career. And this, like I said, saves us time as well, um, because we can use those years, which our current leaders spent somewhere else in another industry to grow even further or utilize the knowledge they have and then um, develop that even more. How has your ASIS professional network helped your career if you are a member, I feel like this, if you, if you are a member of ASIS, um, you will get some visibility in a positive way. And also to get, if you get into the communities, which I did for young professionals, if I uh, apply for a position, they see, okay, this is, this person is a, for example, a good professional, but also outside of his current job, he looks to leverage uh, uh, his connections, the knowledge he's trying to build there. Um, and what I give back to ASIS, um, what I hope I give back, let's put it like that, uh, with the young professionals is to help people like myself, people who are also changing from the, for, for a second career possibly, um, to have their uh, point on the horizon, because that's, <clears throat> that's something which is still unclear. The career path. There's so much things to to do, and ASCS is doing an amazing job to point that out as well. Uh, from where we're going, where we should go, where we can go, um, and to follow that path in a in a more um, not normal way, but more a natural way. Um, and ASCS is just yeah. I I think it's just amazing. Um, I, I don't have any other words. I learned a lot. I've got the mentors. Um, uh, also, what I really like uh, is the foundation part. Um, it's really nice for people who are starting the career definitely to utilize the ACS foundation. I did it myself. I got my uh, APP, Associate uh, Protection Professional Certification, just this February. Um, and it's just amazing that you get this opportunity uh, for the foundation part. Um, to get that done and to to learn and to grow as a professional um yeah so i would like to end there <laughs> Derek Vanderweerd, thank you so much for your work and time you give this community it was great to learn so much about what you're doing during membership appreciation month asis members remember you can get special deals exclusive content and win prizes all month long 
visit asisonline.org forward slash M-A-M to learn more. Mr. Irwin, thanks again for coming on the show. Thank you very much, Chuck. Jody Reed leads the security team at the Bow Tower, one of Canada's largest skyscrapers. He has been involved in the service and security industry for more than 30 years, starting his career as a contract security officer and working his way up to a senior management role. Jody Reed, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thank you for having me, Chuck. Today's topic, the milestones in the marathon, the security management marathon, really interesting title and use of the term. Define that for our listeners. Yeah, sure. I, you know, there was a, a couple of months ago, I, I was talking to one of my junior supervisors, uh, you know, and he was really expressing his frustration. Uh, his projects were falling behind. He was really, his list kept getting longer. Uh, staff kept coming in with, with other problems. And he was just, he was just overwhelmed, uh, really trying to find a way to, to get through all these uh, things that were expected of him. Um, you know, and I got thinking about that and where this, you know, comes from, from a, a mountain perspective is, you know, I was out hiking one day and, and I, and I got thinking about this conversation with this, with the supervisor, you know, and, and my hiking partner always says, you know, let's go to the top of the hill and see what's on the other side. And, and I guess over the course of a couple of years, I, I quickly figured out that what's on the other side of a, a hill or a mountain is an, is just another mountain. Um, you know, and I think the light bulb went on for me, you know, to continue that conversation with that supervisor, because oftentimes we don't, we don't talk about this sort of stuff, you know, again, when you get into leadership roles or junior leadership roles and, and there's all these expectations that come flying at you. And, and especially when you're into the people management side, there's not often finish lines or clear finish lines. Um, you know, and I think, you know, I always go back to thinking about, um, you know, people that I know, uh, you know, whether it's a, a electrician you know, works over a couple of weeks or a month to wire up a new warehouse, flicks a switch at the end of the day and the lights come on or a carpenter, you know, has a deck to build. And, and, and when, when she's done, she stands back and, and can appreciate that deck. Um, I think in the security industry, it continually evolves, whether it's people management or systems, the, the finish line just keeps moving or there's no clear finish line. So I think it's very important to create those finish lines for yourself. You know, that makes a lot of sense. I made it to the C-level in my security career. Uh, and at that level, you delegate. At that level, you motivate. and that level, you inspire your workers to move forward. And you try to give them clear goals and finish lines, but it doesn't always work in security. I, I totally understand that. How much of this do you think uh, is self-inflicted in a way, right? Uh, clearly, to your point, security yeah. is constantly evolving. And to me, I consider myself the conductor of the orchestra uh, as opposed to, uh, I don't know, uh, finishing the, the piece, right? It, it, you're always just kind of making the parts move around. And if, if you're at a supervisor level, there's more doing at the supervisor level than there is delegating. True. Yeah, no, that that's very true. And I think, you know, depending on the level in the organization, I think that's, you know, if you, if you start at the higher level, and I think this is the importance of, of people learning about and embracing the ESRM um, ideas, you know, or I guess, you know, to, to break it down into the simplest form is really understanding what the organization or the, or the, or the C-suite or the management group wants out of the security service and then delivering on that. Um, but then I think it's important to, you know, you have those actionable goals, but I think it's, it's very important to uh, create a finish line and then call it out, you know, and call out when, when we've crossed that finish line and celebrate the crossing of the finish line. Um, because again, 
the race never it never seems to end. If you don't have a finish line, there's always a there's always a problem employee. There's always a new project coming forward. Um, and I think it's you know we as management, especially management of people, stopping uh, to recognize that that we've done, made an improvement or we've crossed the finish line, and then celebrating that and and letting the whole team know um, that that that's happened and that we should should we be proud of it. So I I think uh, from my perspective, a lot of that fell on the upper management for not setting some clear goals or deadlines or finish lines, if you want to call it that. Uh, how much do you think that plays into it? I, I'm not going to look at the supervisor level and say that they have as big an issue as somebody above them that's not helping them understand that position and what they're supposed to accomplish. Yes. No, I agree. I agree 100%. Um, you know, I think a lot of the time, you know, in organizations that I've been involved with, they know they need security. They don't know why they need security. They don't know what they're trying to accomplish. Um, and again, I think as a as the manager, uh, depending on the different levels in the organization, but if we talk about the sort of the, the, the manager on the site, the security manager on the site, um, I think that person, it's really, it's really upon them to understand the business and to talk to the, the business piece, uh, the business people there and figure out, you know, what, what do we want out of this? And it, they may not know. And again, that's where we come back to, you know, risk assessments uh, and this sort of stuff and presenting those ideas to upper management about, okay, here's, here's what we've identified of areas of concern. Um, you know, what, what are, what's our core elements? What are our core focus? And, you know, for me, you know, I, I fall back on, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been involved in the property management side for a long time. And I, I've, I very easily break it into six sections that are common to my industry. And, and that would be the, you know, the emergency preparation, the physical security piece, I take technology uh, as its own as its own uh, section, uh, risk management, competency and growth of the staff, and then the service offering. So each of those you know core elements for me are going to hold different levels of importance depending on the industry. If it's a shopping center, if it's an office tower, if it's a if it's a warehouse, uh, and you know, and then taking a look at what what's important to that management staff and building building the security offering around those core elements. So to me, I always told my staff that guard is a verb, not a noun. But upper management often, uh, to your previous point, looks at the security department as something they have to have. They don't understand it. They're not sure where all the moving parts are. And they would call the guard a noun. It's a position. It's a title. They don't really get all the moving parts yes. behind that. So I think it's incumbent upon the, the supervisor level in a security department to help self-define what he does. Uh, and, you know, to your point, you can create this this circle where you just can't get off the, uh, what, what's the term, off the uh, the hamster treadmill, right? And you, and you never think you're finished. Yeah, yes. Uh, and that can that can lead to some, some problematic uh, management systems inside your department. Yeah. What would you give advice to somebody that's, that's stuck on this treadmill and, and they want to just kind of maybe just step off it for a while? How do you, how do, you do that and look at it? from a, a, a functional perspective. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point. I think, you know, right, right from the very beginning, um, I think the security service needs to have clearly defined uh, a mission statement, you know, vision, mission, and the core values. And it, and it could very, it needs to align with the business, um, but it's going to be its own, right? I mean, the, the security personnel need to do what they do and, and understand what's that end purpose, you know, Policies, procedures, everything aside, I mean, they need to understand why we're doing what we're doing. So I think, 
you know, working with the team. And, and again, I always come back to not, you know, we don't sit and make these, you know, visions and missions in a closed room and, and they come raining down from above. I think it's a collaborative effort with the team. We talk talking about it. I mean, the manager has to take responsibility for, for the end deliverable, um, but it, it gets developed from the team. And then from those, you know, the mission and the vision and the core values, I think it's incumbent upon the security department to have clear measurables. And some of those, you know, uh, reporting measurables, they, they may come from the upper management, what's important to them, but but also, you know, what's important to that, the, to that department. And I think, it, you know, an easy one for me to pick out is uh, from a service perspective, you know, uh, have a have a um, dedicated mystery shop program um, with uh, deliverable um, results. You know, if it's every month, every quarter, whatever whatever that that cycle looks like, take a look at them. And again, it doesn't just go on a filing cabinet in the manager's office, but it's something we share with the entire staff. And if, if we're scoring eighty percent, you know, and we need and then we need to set a goal. You know, uh, by the end of this year, we want to be scoring. 85%, 90% on these. And, and if we get there at the end of the year, we talk about it. We talk about how did we get there? What what things, you know, did we accomplish? You know, what was the goal of the, the mystery shop? And where were we losing points? How did we get those points? And then at the end of the year, if we get our, our score up, if it's, you know, whatever the goal was, 90% or 95%, we celebrate. And, and for me, you know, in days gone by, you know, that was the, the supervisory uh, management group for the security team cooking, cooking them breakfast at the annual staff meeting and sharing, uh, sharing those wins. So, again, I think measurables are important. And, and I always and I, I always stress, you know, whatever you're measuring, it can't just go on a spreadsheet and go back into a, a file, electronic file or your filing cabinet. It has to be on the wall. It has to be, you know, visible all the time. You know, why are we doing what we're doing? How are we doing it? Where are we missing missing areas? And I think constantly revisiting that and sharing that with the with the team. And then when you cross that finish line, celebrate it. When I first started out as a manager, I thought, why are there so many managers? And by the time I entered my career, I said, we need more managers. We need a lot more managers mm -hmm. in the security business. Uh, it's just the nature of the beast. One thing I, I learned... Yes. Uh, later on was I, I always had people self-evaluate. So when your yearly evaluation came up, I never wrote evaluations. I had people write their own. In fact, I had people write their own discipline when they did something wrong and give themselves yeah. their own days off, right? And what I found is people are yes. much more difficult on themselves and judgmental of themselves than a supervisor would ever be. It's not where people say, I did nothing wrong. Yeah. People just don't usually take that position. How much of this, to my earlier comment about a self-inflicted wound, could there be going on here? Can the supervisors really be too hard on themselves when, in fact, uh, when you're looking at them as an employee, they're doing a fantastic job? Are they stressing themselves out a little bit yeah. here sometimes? Yeah, yeah. No, exactly. And I think that's a goal. Or hopefully, part of the purpose of a of a manager is is seeing that and seeing how we can redirect. Um, you know, I, I think back when I you know became a, a supervisor, shift supervisor, senior supervisor, and again, it's you know you try you try what you think works. You you know you you go you go you know very uh, hard and fast on everybody. Well, maybe that doesn't work so much. So you so you ease off a little bit, uh, but maybe ease off too much, and they start doing you know the employees start doing whatever they want to do as soon as you walk out the door. So it's finding that middle ground, and I and I think you know constantly reevaluating your goals. I mean, 
Um, you know, for, for where I am currently, you know, we have a, a supervisory staff. Um, and when we come to the to our meetings, we have a regular ryth a rhythm, meeting rhythm, where we meet every three weeks. Um, you know, and allow them to, to report on their projects. But then we always evaluate. I mean, we obviously set out an annual plan, um, but sometimes things get messed up. Uh, you know, and I, and I and I think back, you know, not too long ago, uh, early 2020, we had a very um, jam-packed year plan, projects, goals. I mean, we were we were really gonna gonna knock it over the top. And then, um, you know, March of of 2020, um, things started to go crazy in our area with the pandemic, and uh, all of a sudden, all these things that were really important 30 days ago. We're not going to accomplish them, and 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 everybody started to stress out. I think myself included. So I think it's taking that time, is to stop, you know, back up and take a look at what were the goals, why were they important, um, you know, something that we labeled critical, thirty days ago. Is it still critical? If the answer is yes, then we still need to move forward. If it's not, we need to get it off the sh off the sheet. And and however however those you know tasks are identified if you're using a spreadsheet or a piece of paper i mean everybody uses different methods and that's fine it's reevaluating and I, like i come back to that original story with that supervisor you know and each week he would almost start a new piece of paper and make a list of the things and of course he ended up with you know 30 pieces of paper and they all had you know hundreds of things that he's supposed to do and he's like hold on like <laughs> you need to go through that that list uh and figure out what's actually important because what was important two weeks ago might not be important today it may still be, and if it if it is, then we need to get to completing it. If it isn't, get it off the list and put it into a future plan or a brainstorming document of some sort that you can look back at the end of the year and maybe evaluate for the for the upcoming year. All right, Jordan, I'm going to tell you this story. My editor might not like it, but I really think it speaks to some of the challenges that young supervisors uh, face. So I was a brand new manager at the Fox Broadcasting Company. Uh, it's a brand new studio. We just built a brand new building. I mean, I'm overwhelmed, right? I'm like, I cannot yeah. keep up with all this stuff. And I had an inbox and the inbox became a tray and the tray became a, a small box. And my inbox literally became a moving box, right? And yeah. there's just no yeah. way I was ever going to get to that. And I couldn't even delegate it. I took that box one day and I went downstairs in the basement to the dumpster and I threw it away. And guess what happened, Jody? <laughs> yeah. Absolutely nothing happened. Nobody cared. Nobody called about any of those projects. Nobody ever yeah. followed up on this stuff. Yeah. Eventually, the important things bubbled to the surface, right? And those got yes. handled as yes. they came across the desk. Now, I wouldn't recommend this as a best practice, yeah. but it actually worked. Gravity, no, no. Yep. you know, yep. kind of made, yep. made the unimportant stuff drop off and important stuff, the light stuff, the important stuff rise to the top. So yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. it's difficult for the... No, it's it's a guard funny, supervisor. It's funny though. It's yeah. It's so it's so true though. You know, and I I remember you know my last job and my 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 general manager at that property. He was he was a you know he was an idea guy. You know he would just ideas would just float constantly into the air and and of course you know me being the new manager, I'm running around trying to solve all these problems and I and I remember the property manager one day pulled me aside and she said, Jody, like what are you doing? I said, well, Terry said this, Terry said that, Terry said this. And she said, hold on, Terry just floats things into the sky. You know, if he says it once, okay, fine. If he says it twice, make a note. If he says it three times, then he really wants it done. <laughs> you know, and it was trying to find trying to find that balance, right? Because you're, you're right, I've gone to jobs where 
the previous security manager had two boxes of stuff like under the desk, you know, and what, what, what should I do with that? Should I go through it all? And they, you know, exactly kind of what you said, you start to look at it and go, Holy Hannah, this is insane. I throw it out and start again. <laughs> and it's, and it's okay. <laughs> it can be. That's right. I, again, we're not recommending that as be. best practice to anybody listening. So, <laughs> but don't be too hard on yourself. I think is the point of the, of, of the story. Really, yes. Goes. No, that's a good point. So, yeah. All right, my friend, excellent, excellent stuff. Uh, good luck to you. And uh, awesome. we'll chat again soon. All right. Thanks so much.